Hello, this is Donna Gates with Body Ecology. And thank you very much for joining us today. I have a great guest. I'm actually really excited about this interview because I feel like people can't get well unless they address how they deal with stress. And we have men, men and womankind have been under stress forever. Like we talk about how stressful today is, but when you really think back about how difficult it was to survive, what a short lifespan early ancestors had, they had stress all the time. They spent so much of their time wondering how were they going to eat, for example, where they, was, do they have shelter? Were they safe from the enemies? So stress is not something new, but you know, it doesn't matter. We, we're, we're dealing with a lot of different types of stress today. So over the years, I've kind of wondered, um, first of all, why do people not have willpower? Why do they start off wanting to absolutely do something and then they can't, uh, they, they, after a few days or weeks or something, they're, they're, they can't do it anymore. And there's nothing wrong with their willpower. I just think that because they are not really aware of stress, how sabotaging them, that when I heard about a device called the Apollo Neuro and found out that I could actually interview the man who developed this with a team of scientists at the University of Cincinnati, I was really, really excited for this interview. So this is Dr. David Rabin, and thank you so much, David. I know you're super busy, so thank you for spending time with us right now. Thanks for having me, Donna. I really appreciate it. And it was actually at the University of Pittsburgh by the way. So oh. no worries oh, okay. at all. But but yeah, all the work that, that, that Apollo came out of uh, was research that I was conducting at the University of Pittsburgh that we can maybe get into today. But thank you again for having me. Thank you. So I have a lot of questions. Like all, I always come kind of over-prepared. And I want you to know that even though I'm very comfortable in talking to people, there's always a part of me that's stressed out beforehand because I want to do it right. I want to do the interview well. And I've already spent a couple of, I always spend a couple of days getting prepared and then I don't even necessarily use what I've learned, but um, so that's where I am. But fortunately I now have an Apollo Neuro. I have it on my arm. It's turned inside because ideally you are supposed to wear it. It's not showing up very well on the inside of your wrist. So I wear it inside my wrist. I actually more often wear it on my leg because, you know, I'll get my hands in water and I'll always put it on my leg at night when I'm sleeping. But in today, this morning, before um, I started getting dressed, I turned right after I got, took a shower, I actually turned on my Apollo Neuro and put it on the relax, don't be stressed out mode and did that for a while. And then I, just before I sat down to do this interview, I put it on clear and focused and it really works. So I'm very excited to go into more details. Um, I kind of wanted to start off. I know that you're a psychiatrist and a psychotherapist. I'm actually, do you mind telling people what a psychotherapist does? Like what have you been spending all these years doing that led you to developing this amazing um, wearable? Like, I guess that's what we should call it, just a wearable. Sure. Yeah. So uh, the Apollo technology came out of work that I was doing at the University of Pittsburgh in the field of psychiatry and, and psychotherapy. I was working with a lot uh, and, and psychiatrists traditionally going way back into uh, American history and the history of the psychiatrist in 
Europe, um, we all practice psychotherapy. Psychotherapy, talk therapy was a core part of what we do. In the US nowadays, a lot of people know their psychiatrists only as the those who distribute pills, um, which is not the ideal use of our specialty. Um, and it's not the way that we work the best. We do work the best in a talk therapy capacity. A lot of that talk therapy, unfortunately, has been eliminated from the psychiatrist education. So now we have to take extra steps to get that training elsewhere. Um, so I am a psychiatrist by training in the Western model of going through medical school. And um, I also have a graduate PhD in neuroscience um, and clinical neuroscience being uh, research on neural cell, neural cells and stem cells and culture in a dish, and then looking at chronic stress responses and resilience and how that translates into the way we function as whole people. Um, and what we can learn about the stress response and resilience from the cellular and molecular side. And then as a psychiatrist, I see patients with specifically post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, um, anxiety disorders, uh, chronic pain, insomnia, and, and anything that typically is considered to be uh, what people call treatment resistant um, or treatment refractory. These are the, and substance use disorders as well. These are the groups that I see the most of. Um, and this is what really spurred the understanding of, um, of Apollo was that the folks who I was seeing in my practice just never felt safe outside of the office. And I could help them feel safe in the office. And in the office, we could do a lot of great work together. But when they left the office, they would feel triggered by their environment again and have a lot of trouble you know, really engaging in a lot of the techniques that we had worked on together. And so Apollo came out of this idea of, could we make something like a wearable that could help people, uh, not just people who are patients, but anyone who's struggling with uh, stress, with overwhelming stress or, or worry in their lives or not feeling like they're getting the most out of themselves and could we, or not sleeping well, and could we give people something that they could wear that didn't require a therapist and didn't require a doctor that could help them feel safer in their day-to-day -day lives at home. Well, something that popped into my mind from way back in the past. So I've, I have my first degrees in child development. And some of the things I do remember is um, this theory that Eric Erickson developed on social um, or psychological social development, I guess is the best way to describe it. But the very first emotion is the emotion of trust. So I know when I was raising my children, I kept trying to remember that, you know, so that they were born into a world that had trust <laughs> around them. Because according to the Eric Erickson theory, which I completely agree with, if you don't learn to trust, you can't learn to love others, you can't learn to love yourself. Do you mind kind of speaking to that a little bit? Absolutely. I, I completely agree with you there. And I think that that trust, especially that we build growing up, trust with our loved ones, trust with ourselves, trust with being able to feel, um, you know, understand how to feel what's coming out of our bodies, feel the signals that are coming to us without judgment. Emotions are signals that are trying to tell us things about the environment that could be addressed. And if we judge those signals and don't trust the signals, then we tend to not make the best decisions about the signals. So um, there's a big, I think that's a, that's a perfect um, way to talk about this is because the foundation of trust is literally the foundation upon which everything else in terms of our growth and development is based on. And um, there's a lot of references to this, not just in Western medicine, 
uh, stemming from Hippocrates, but even going further back into ancient Hindu and Ayurvedic medicine, Buddhist and Chinese medicine and tribal medicine, where um, in tribal medicine, one of my favorite examples is from one of the tribes of Peru, where they describe the foundation of trust in ourselves is supported by four pillars. And the four pillars are self-gratitude, self-forgiveness, self-compassion, and self-love. And these pillars are effectively skill sets that are emotional, mental skills, like building muscles that we, every time we think about these skills, every time we use gratitude and we express gratitude and we act graciously, we are strengthening our gratitude muscle and we're increasing the amount of trust we have in ourselves over time and effectively rewiring our nervous system in the process. You just said something really important. And I want to stress that. And I thought about that earlier and actually wrote that word gratitude down because I learned long ago from a spiritual teacher that the way to handle stress is to be absolutely grateful all the time for everything, even the bad things that happen in your life. And of course, I've tried to practice that too, but it's hard to do that because there's a whole bunch of things uh, that pull us out of that sense of gratitude. And so um it's just hard to be there, but it's true that if you could, you know, always see that everything that happens to you in a positive way, but if we're physiological, if we're biologically, we're naturally stressed out, um, you just can't go there. So, so one of the things I'm really fascinated by and have been for quite a few years now are our genes. And so I've looked at people's genes and I have found that a lot of people have variants in the COMT gene. That's a gene that just for everybody else, you know, you know this, but you know, when we get stressed out for many of us that have this gene, our dopamine goes up, our adrenaline and adrenaline, we, we're very stressed out. But if you have this gene, which I do, unfortunately, which many people do, because it was a survival gene, you stay stressed out. Like the events that stress you out is over with, but you're still wired. And so are people that come home from work, they've been stressed out all day long. Now they want to unwind, be with their family. And they, if they have this gene, they just don't can't get there. So I think that's another really excellent benefit of the, of the Apollo Neuro. So can you just sort of tell us how it works? Sure. So Apollo works by our sense of touch. So when we, um, getting back to something you alluded to earlier, when we are in a situation where we perceive threat from the environment, our bodies don't know the difference between running from a lion and our emails or too many responsibilities or the news or um, any number of other things that could set us off. And so um, what is critical is for us to, and you mentioned willpower earlier, willpower is really, is really the understanding that we are in control of what we allow into our consciousness, what we allow into our awareness. So thinking about it from the standpoint of um, feeling out of control, when, like many people do in our lives, is one of the major triggers of feeling overwhelmed, feeling stressed, feeling anxious. And the more time we spend of our precious attention every day focusing on things we don't have control over, then the more out of control we feel. And contrary to that, the more time we spend focusing on things we do have control over, like our movement, our breath, what we put into our bodies, what we do with our time and our attention, then the more we feel in control in our lives. And it's as simple as that. So when you think about what breath work does, 
or what soothing touch does or what soothing music does to the body or stretching um, or walking or any of these things, what happens to the body is a body, for example, when uh, soothing, when a breath comes in to your nose and you start to draw your attention to the breath, what happens is subconsciously and sometimes consciously, but usually it's beneath our awareness, our brains recognize that immediately if we have the time to pay attention to the feeling of this air coming into our nose, mouth, and lungs, then we can't possibly be running from a lion in this moment. So the thing we thought was a real threat is actually likely not to be a survival threat because if it was a lion, our bodies would not allow us to take control of our attention and focus on breathing. It would be getting us out of that situation as quickly as possible, survival. So it's the same for Apollo. This response that you can engage with deep breathing to remind us that we're safe is a very powerful, powerful response, but it does require practice. And most of us struggle, as you mentioned earlier, to engage that response when we're already stressed out, when our bodies are already primed biologically for stress or trained for, to be in a stressful state. And so when you turn on Apollo and you draw your attention to the vibration, the gentle, soothing vibration that kind of pulses in and out, it kind of feels like a cat purring or an ocean wave washing over your body, that feeling reminds us that if we have time to pay attention to it, we can't possibly be running from a lion. And those vibration patterns, in addition to providing that soothing stimulus to our safety center of our brain, it seems to be activating the vagus nerve pathways and some of the other pathways that are activated by hand-holding or somebody giving you a hug that reminds us that we are physically safe. And calming the body ends up in turn calming the mind and allowing us to take more control of our attention that makes sense. Well, you mentioned the breathing and I know the breathing is a wonderful way to help the vagus nerve relax. That's that super highway between the brain and the gut. I'd love to talk about that for a little while because we're real big on, on the gut. And I've been talking for and teaching for years about this gut brain connection. Could you talk about, explain the, the connection between the two and then the effect that the Apollo neuro would have on the brain, on the, does it have an effect on the vagus nerve? And certainly it does on the gut. Yeah. So Apollo definitely has an effect on what we call like parasympathetic tone or vagal tone. So the vagus nerve is the primary nerve in the parasympathetic recovery nervous system. So this is the, the signals that are sent from the vagus nerve are signals that typically increase digestion, increase uh, resources to digestion, recovery, sleep, creativity, immunity, reproduction, empathy, all the things that make our lives rich and great and fun, but are not necessarily important for survival in the moment where we're under threat. So when, um, so, so the connection between the gut and the brain is really important because the gut is where we actually generate a lot of our serotonin. So the um, the, the serotonergic neurons, the, the neurons in our gut that talk to our brain are actually some of the main primary ways that we discovered in the beginning of the uh, 20th century that it was discovered that, that the serotonergic system was involved in mood and mood regulation and how important serotonin was as a neurotransmitter. And it turns out that the, a big part of the, the regulation between um, mood and, and the way we feel has a lot to do with the kind of surprise, surprise, the food and the things we put into our bodies and how healthy our gut is, is a big part of that because the, are so many direct connections from the gut to our emotional brain 
um, via these serotonin neurons. So it's, it's a very fascinating system that I think we're still learning a lot about. Um, and we don't know, uh, we definitely don't know the full story yet. I think that there's a lot more uh, interesting stuff that's coming out. I, but without a doubt, the Apollo, Apollo does activate the parasympathetic vagal nerve system. Um, it's not activating it the same way that a vagal nerve stimulator does, but it does activate that system through the touch receptors of the skin, kind of like music that's composed for your skin rather than for your ears. Mm -hmm. I know you all, all every, your team, were all musicians and that played a role part in you sort of figuring out how to do this. But have you had a chance, because I know the polyneural is pretty new, so I'm sure many more studies will come along, but I imagine you haven't had a chance to see if there's any effect on the microbiome, the bacteria in the gut that would be very much affected. Of course, they're killed by stress. So any studies or research on that yet? We have not yet, but there are some studies in the works on that mm. front. So when we have any results back, I'll let you know. Oh, please. That, that's very important. Well, um, so there's so many things I wanted to ask you about. Um, because I have a degree in child development, I tend to always think about, maybe even worry about the future of our children. And I've had a period of time where I work with children with autism. They're so wired. They're so nervous. It's hard for them to heal. Um, fixing the gut is really critical. Bringing infections under control and that inflammation, the inflammation in the brain is really critical. So I think that this would be a great device for children. Can you talk about that? And also, is there an age range when you can't use the device? So we, that's a great question. We have a lot of kids using Apollo uh, and we also have some clinical trials that have been conducted already, pilot trials with kids and they've had incredible results and more trials are upcoming for ADHD and PTSD in kids. But overwhelmingly, uh, kids have responded extremely well, if not better than adults to Apollo, which is really interesting. And I think I a big think part, so. yeah, I mean, I think a big, there's two, two reasons why I think that probably happens. One of which is kids are more sensitive to stimulation like Apollo anyway. So they tend to be more sensitive to touch in general and more open to it. Um, and additionally, uh, kids like to feel in control of how they feel. And it's very mm -hmm. rare in this day and age with so much craziness going on around us all the time and uh, that we necessarily have been taught to feel in control of how we feel, especially as kids or adolescents. And so having something that you can activate with the press of a button that helps you feel a little calmer or a little more awake or a little more focused without having to take a drug is actually really, pow really powerful for children, even more so, I think, than for many adults. Um, yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. And it reminds me too, that uh, as far as learning goes and brain development, like if you're, if you have one in your home for their child is wearing and you're working with them at home and you, or he even goes to school with it, if, if it's possible, um, because the app is probably going to be on mom's or dad's phone. But um, if you had, if the child was wearing the Apollo Neuro and he's learning, it seems like he'd be much more, I mean, one of the, settings is calm and focused. That's the one I put on just before I started talking to you. And I probably have to reset it soon because I only had 30 minutes. But um, yeah, so, you know, it seems like it would be fantastic for learning. Uh, and then, of course, you know, learning doesn't just happen once. It continues to become something that goes on for years. And then you reach the teenagers, which is another time when kids like to be in control and the suicide rate is 
really, really high in teenagers today. They're so depressed. So I, it seems to me like that would be another good, great group to get your teenager one too. So yeah, we're definitely working with those groups now. And, and it's been very rewarding to see how much, how well they do with the device and particularly with teenagers and kids being able to use less medicine, uh, less prescription medicine and less drugs because of Apollo. And so that's been really promising because when kids don't feel in control of their lives, they act out and they get prescribed medicine most of the time. And another group of kids act out and they seek their own self-medication. And so um, these, this can cause a lot of harm to kids growing up, particularly when the brain is in a very neuroplastic state, when we're primed to learn. And so it's important that we help nurture kids and help them with an environment that is safe, that they feel more in control of, that you know really helps them learn the things that that are serving them. And I think to answer your, your last question that I did not answer um, was the age limits. There's no age limits for Apollo, but we recommend that people under the age of three or four don't use it because mm -hmm. of the choking hazard, which is just a standard choking hazard for all um, all, all devices of this size. It's, it would be unlikely really? that that would happen. It's kind of big to choke on it. <laughs> it would be unlikely that that would happen, but the, you know, the, the powers that be demand that unless you've done testing with kids to show that it can't happen, that you must put a warning in there. So we say, you know, uh, under, under three without parents or under four, three or four without parent supervision is not ideal. But the nice thing about Apollo is many of your kids don't have cell phones, right? We, we, a lot of us don't, as parents, we don't necessarily want to give our kids cell phones. Mm -hmm. I work with a lot of kids who's, who have had their attention control sabotaged in a lot of ways by too much screen time. Mm -hmm. um, and video I think games. that, yeah, video games. So, so I think the cell phones and iPads and those are actually worse even than video games, but video games certainly contribute. I think that there is an opportunity to, with Apollo, because you don't have to have it connected to your phone. Like you need to, you need to have it connect to your phone to set it up. And once you set a weight, a pattern on it, you can activate it with the device without a phone around. So the buttons on the device can start it up, stop it, in, change, this, change the intensity, decrease the intensity, and you can continue to use it even if you don't have a phone around. So a lot of parents will actually send their, we're sending their kids to school with it and then just setting it before they leave and then they can activate it at school and it doesn't require oh, a screen great. or anything That's really like good that. to know. Well, getting back to the teenagers, I think <clears throat> those are the years when a lot of kids do get very addicted to video games. They're using them because they're, they're helping them relax. Like, so I think addiction then becomes a problem for them, but also teenagers today, I, I, I wonder about them because what kind of, I mean, they, they are at the age where they're beginning to really wonder about their future. What kind of future will they have? Are they going to even have one actually? Will they have food? Will they have shelter and basic you know, needs met where you can protect your little ones? You, you can make sure they don't hear the news fake news and uh, you know they only report on this really negative scary awful things so you can turn that off keep your kids away from that but it's really hard to protect your teenagers uh, and then they do things like video games but also alcohol so what have you found around addiction for example people using alcohol to unwind and or other kind of drugs to get their dopamine up to feel better I, I mean, people people use drugs to medicate when they and to calm themselves or to wake themselves up or to achieve whatever goal it is that they're they don't feel 
able to achieve on their own without the drugs, without the substances, you know, or they're seeking, a, most people are seeking a feeling. Um, there was a study that came out of the, you know, a lot of this is habit, it's trained habit, right? The most common met drugs that are used, as you mentioned, in the Western world are alcohol and caffeine. Um, mm. People, uh, there was a study that came out in England, I believe, a couple of years ago, I can't remember the, the citation, but um, it, it talked about how roughly 80% of people who use a stimulant like coffee or tea in the morning are taking a sedative at night to fall asleep. So then that sedative could be alcohol, it could be a sleeping pill, but the point is that we're throwing off our rhythms, right? This is this used to be called the Elvis diet. This is the diet of boosting yourself in the morning because you don't feel rested enough to be able to function. And then feeling so boosted at night that you can't fall asleep and then having to take a sedative to knock yourself out. And then you're, our rhythms are totally thrown off. Our rhythms are no longer natural. They're no longer consistent with a circadian rhythm in the environment. And anyone who studied sleep and mental health knows very well that if we do not, have regular circadian sleep and wake cycle rhythms and we don't have structure around those rhythms that we and and we have a lot of medications or or substances interfering with those rhythms that we will end up with more anxiety more worry more depression and just not feeling good more of the time so the sleep regulation is a critical part of all of this that's i think people often forget well i want to talk about sleep because that's huge i'm going to reset mind to clear and focus here, but I want to show everybody what it looks like. And um, so here's what it looks like. Um, that's not what it looks like. Hold on. <laughs> need to get rid of that. So there's seven different options. There we go. And one is sleep and renew meditation and mindfulness. I've been listening to different people and they said that they meditate better. I've never been able to meditate. Maybe it's because of that comp gene. Uh, I overfill my plate like many people do, and I'm always running from deadline to deadline. But um, so I never have been a meditator, but this is better for me. And then, so I'll use it at night. It's really been fantastic for sleep. I hear that very consistently from everybody that's using it. I will wake up a little bit too early. I want to go back to sleep. So I have it near me um, and then I'll put it back on sleep and I definitely get another hour or so in. So to me, it's, if that's all it did, it's worth it. Um, and then also, um, so energy and wake up, I'll put that on in the morning, like most people do, uh, even for just half an hour, uh, instead of co coffee, do you take coffee yourself, Dave? Do you do drink, I drink coffee? coffee? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mostly drink decaf these days. I really like oh. coffee, but it I taste don't. Good. Yeah, I love the taste, but the and I drank it many, many, uh, many years throughout medical school, my training, like many of us did. But I don't really like the feeling of being like amped up on caffeine all day. So mm -hmm. I drink like a very low caffeine coffee or a or like a Swiss water decaf that is you know beans washed with water in a, mm -hmm. in a mm -hmm. special technique that pulls like ninety percent of the caffeine out or something like that. So that mm -hmm. for yeah, me, that's great, is my favorite, but. Um, well, many, it gives you the flavor that people, they just want something out of a habit, something warm and delicious. <laughs> they yeah. like the flavor. Yeah. Good. I'm good. I'm sorry. So let's go back to the Apollo Neuro. Um, so it has seven different settings. I probably should let you tell about the seven settings instead of me talking so much, but um, how did you come up with these seven and, and what are the seven? 
So, so we came up with the, the seven settings are from most energizing to most sleepy. Energy and wake up is kind of like a shot of espresso. When you need a boost, when you're falling asleep in a meeting or falling asleep behind the wheel, that's when I find it's to be the most helpful. Some people use it oh, pre-workout. Um, I Then there's social and open, which is the uh, kind of like a creative social flow. A lot of people use it for group work, public speaking, interviews. I usually use it for interviews and things like that um, because I had a... I'm going to set mine on social and open. That's one of my my favorites. And then um, clear and focused is the next one down, which is like intense, deep focus. Like we've been talking about the kids, kids and adults with ADHD have told us they love this setting. Um, I personally love that setting. It's one of the first ones we discovered in the lab, which was really helping to boost focus and performance. And I use it in the hospital all the time when we first developed the prototypes of Apollo. Um, And then um, getting down to the most balanced mode, the most balanced mode between sympathetic uh, stress response and recovery response, the parasympathetic vagal system is the rebuild and recover mode, which is kind of right in the middle between uh, wakeful and calm and really provides like a nice balanced recovery after any intense stress. Most people use it after physical exercise. Um, and then going down into the much more calming modes the meditation and mindfulness mode is great for obviously meditation and mindfulness, but uh, also great for aches and pains. Uh, great for people who've told us for nerve pain or chronic pain. It's very helpful. Um, and people with um, trauma use it quite a bit uh, as well. And um, it, we, we, I, I, we always call it the Buddha master or the calm flow because it provides like a really nice, calm, gentle, flowy state. Um, and, uh, that's kind of like a walking meditation. And then, um, the relax and unwind is like a very deep relaxation that most people use before bed, uh, to wind down at the end of the day. And then the sleep and renew is what people use when they get into bed. And, um, we just, we came up with those seven settings because those were the modes from our clinical trials and from our real world trials, from talking to thousands of our beta test users and our clinical trial subjects that these are the goals that people wanted to have more than any other. And these were the things that we could do well. And so that's what we ended up focusing on. Well, um, just to tell you a couple of things, I live in a four story house in Charleston, which is the houses here straight up and down. And so if I go all the way up and down a bunch of times in a day, which I do, it's, you get to the point where you're kind of exhausted and I'll get, I'll put the relax. I mean, the rebuild and cover that helps me. But the other day um, I was helping somebody who was thought they were had COVID. They hadn't been tested yet, but um, I have a whole program to help people um, quick recover very quickly um, from a vi- any kind of virus, herpes, you know, I've seen bar, whatever that's starting to break out. And the first thing you have to do is stop. Like when you feel like that herpes infection is coming on, you just have to be very, very still so that your body can put that energy toward getting that virus back under control. Uh, so I think it's great for that. I think is that anytime you feel like you're starting to come down with something, sit down and use that particular one. I, it works really well. I just, recently did that with somebody, but, um, also the, um, so you mentioned pain. I, I don't have any pain, but how does the pain thing work? Cause I've never done that. Well, uh, and I'm glad that, that you've had that experience. We've had, we've heard that from other people that they felt that when they're about to get sick and they use the rebuild and recover meditation and mindfulness mode, that it really helps them. And they feel they're resisting illness better, which makes sense because the parasympathetic system that, that recovery response nervous system, when it gets, more resources 
diverts a lot of those resources to the immune system and to our system that protects our bodies from infection. So, and very all, importantly, they need to sleep well that night too. That's right. critical. It's all about Absolutely. building energy. Exactly. Exactly. And so pain. Um, pain is interesting in the same way because pain is worsened by stress in almost every case. So okay. physical, physical stress, yeah, sure, of course, right? But there's also emotional stress, mental stress, financial stress, legal stress. And it turns out that that stress of any of these varieties, when you're already in pain or you have a predisposition to being in pain, like a past injury or um, something that hasn't healed from the past or inflammation in the body, even itchiness, that the body will increase inflammation when that stress comes. And when that stress comes and the inflammation's increased, we're more likely to be sensitive to that pain and feel it more intensely and for longer periods of time. So actually what, what a lot of people don't realize is that much like somewhere between like 80 and 90% of chronic pain from a past injury, in most cases, 80 to 90% of that pain is actually a remembered pain. It's like a trained pain pathway. It doesn't, it's not actually due anymore to an, an acute injury. And so by, by retraining our mental, emotional brain and doing, you know, physical stretches and things that help to, re to relax the fascia, which is that connective tissue that wraps around every single organ and every single part of the insides of our bodies, then we, our emotional and mental health can literally directly be um, used as tools to help us overcome much chron many chronic pain situations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, getting back to the genes, I have genes like many, many, many people do for um, to develop diabetes or become insulin resistant very easily. And, and I don't need sugar, but I got this little skin tag in my neck and, and from one of my A4M courses, Dr. Jonathan Wright mentioned that skin tags are insulin resistance. So I thought, well, that's strange because I don't eat sugar. So why would I become, you know, not having trouble controlling my blood sugar? Well, then I realized that this goes along with the comp gene that I, you, when you're stressed out, your blood, your glucose goes up, your blood sugar goes up. That's a major, major cause of insulin resistance. And it's not just about diet and eating sugar. So again, that, this became such an important, I was so excited when I learned about this and that, that this was available because I think there's so many, many, uh, you know, benefits you're getting from it. And of course, you know, any aging, like I think our healthy aging, um, what it, can you talk to that? Because we have people in our team, the people who follow me, they mostly range from 40 into their 70s. I'm 74 myself. So I really, um, you know, I think this is very critical to help, um, help people age well. For sure. And, and any of the techniques we're talking about can be, anti, can be considered in the anti-aging category. So mm -hmm. everything from Apollo to breath work, to movement meditation, mindfulness meditation, yoga, um, good nutrition, you know, getting at least like, you know, roughly 30 minutes or more or so of exercise a day um, of some sort, some sort of movement. All of that is part of a ecosystem of autonomic nervous system toning, which is, can be just thought of of, as achieving balance in our bodies that allow us to access more of our fullest potential in terms of recovery. So our society, unfortunately, is very much focused on 
performance, 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 and that we should always expect to get the best out of ourselves, even if we're underslept and underpaid and not feeling very good. And I think that is a very unhealthy and unrealistic way to think about uh, about life and about what we push ourselves to do. Because if we want to live the longest, most happy, successful lives, what we need to do is prioritize peak recovery as much as we prioritize peak performance. They're not mutually exclusive. They have to coexist together. If we don't take that time to take breaks, real breaks, where we're actually not thinking about or talking about work at all or what stresses us out, and then we are able to take that time to make sure we are engaging in the safety techniques. We're making sure that we are feeling safe physically, mentally, emotionally, legally, financially, as much as we can control the, the factors that we can control, then all of a sudden we, our recovery nervous system starts to turn on more often of the time. And that results over time in more longevity, less illness, um, and we can measure it, right? We can actually measure this as higher heart rate variability. That's one mm -hmm. of the tools that is used to measure how recovered we are and how resilient we are to stress. Well, would you explain the difference for people who are listening between heart rate and heart rate variability? Sure. So heart rate is what we talk about is how many beats per minute. So the average heart rate of uh, uh, you know the average heart rate of a person might be sixty beats per minute, which means most people think that means one beat each second, but that's actually not how it works. The 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 heart beats sometimes it's half a second, sometimes it's 0.8 seconds in between each beat, sometimes it's one second, sometimes it's one point five seconds, sometimes it's more, um, and the variability between the beats is the rate of change of the heartbeat over time. So. Uh, what that means is how quickly the heartbeat goes up or down in relation to signals from the environment or from within ourselves, thoughts, feelings, et cetera. So when stress comes, for instance, so we want, so, so backing up for a sec, we want our heart rate to generally be low, our, our resting heart rate in particular, we want it to be low and in somewhere in the range of like, you know, ideally like the forties to fifties is what, what we mm -hmm. want it to be when we're sleeping. Um, mm -hmm or first thing in the morning, and we want our heart rate variability to be high. We want our heart rate to bounce up quickly when stress comes, and then we want it to bounce down quickly when stress is gone and we're in a safe situation. Mm -hmm. If, when, when people have PTSD, as an example, stress comes and then they, or something they perceive to be stressful comes, their heart rate jumps up in advance and they are up there and their heart rate's very high and then the stress is gone and everything's safe again and their heart rate is still very high and it takes a very long time for them to come down um, very sometimes sometimes weeks so they're wow. so, right really? so these so that's so, so training for heart rate variability is one way now that we can track our resilience and recovery over time and you know idea there's not there's some wearables that can do this but i think the main idea is just to 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 do the, the, the vagal techniques, the parasympathetic techniques that we've been talking about, Apollo included, all help to boost heart rate variability over time. And that's just one way we can track recovery. And a lot of people do have an R ring, so they would be able to track it very easily. I, yes, um, I have choose. one of those too. I have one too. Yeah, me too. I don't have it on right now. Anyway, um, so gosh, I had another thought that was really important. Hold on just a second. I check my notes. Um, can someone actually recover from alcoholism? I know it's one of your specialties. Like you have people come in, you're trying to help them from addiction and alcoholism, for example. Would you recommend that they, uh, you know, would this help someone who is trying to recover from 
um, alcoholism and not go back to drinking if they've stopped? Um, sure. I mean, it is absolutely a tool that can help just like there are lots of, just like psychotherapy is a tool, just like mm-hmm. deep breathing is a tool. There are just like AA is a, is a program tool, right? There are all these different tools that we can use um, to help. And it's not just one thing though. You know, this is a ad- addiction, whether it's alcohol or sex or gambling or cocaine or what have you, or opiates. It's a, it's a very difficult thing to treat because it usually involves multiple different things going on that, uh, and it's not, a, it's not an, you know, it's not an illness like people think it's, it's addiction is almost always due to trauma. There, there are things that happen in our lives that we, um, are ashamed of, embarrassed by, and we feel guilty around, angry about, and we don't feel comfortable sitting with those emotions. And those emotions over time become very painful as they get stored up in our bodies. And it's for many people easier to numb themselves or escape or distract themselves from those emotions and those feelings and those memories than it is to dive headfirst into them, recognizing that the sooner they do, the sooner they face their fears, the sooner we face our fears, the sooner that we will grow past our fears. And I think that's something that we need to, that we haven't been taught, right? So why would you expect anybody to know it? But a big part of all the work we do is using all of these tools that we have access to, to help teach that and to help people understand and learn that about themselves and learn they can grow past their addiction. Um, They can, whatever that addiction is, and then guiding them through that process. And everybody's at a different stage when they start out on that, on that path. Mm -hmm. What would you say to somebody that comes to you and says, um, I have uh, an addiction to work. I love my work. Once I start working, I can't stop working, but you know, let's say it's a guy and he needs to go home and his wife's saying really waiting for him to come home all day and play with the kids. And, and he just is addicted in that way. Like, how would you tell him to use the Apollo him or her? Uh, well, I, I think, you know, again, it's not just Apollo, right? There's certain things that we have to, we have to, we would, we would talk about in terms of priorities and, you know, really understanding, how is this, how is spending all of this time working, helping you accomplish your goals? Are there any downsides that you, that this person recognizes that are coming from spending so much time working, right? And that creates a certain awareness that perhaps the, the pattern I've been following, the habit I've been following of, of this work addiction is not necessarily serving me all the time. Maybe it's making some people I really care about very upset or unhappy. Maybe it's going to cost me my family or my, or my children, right? And that is a real thing that happens to doctors and, and other people alike all the time. Um, so the way we recommend using Apollo is the way, same way that I use Apollo, which is to help, in, help smooth out the transitions between events. Um, so one of the big things that high-performing people struggle with is, is when we get really engaged and passionate about our work, we have trouble stepping down out of that state because work can be enjoyable and ideally it should be, right? We want to enjoy our work. We want it to be gratifying. So what we recommend is setting up little routines that you can use that help you transition from one state to another. And if that routine just starts out with at the end of your workday, setting your Apollo to meditation and mindfulness mode or rebuild and recover to help you wind down from this intense, deep focused work Mm -hmm. level of consciousness into a level where you're ready to hang out with your family and be social and relaxed, then that's what you need to do. It involves a 
10 minute meditation or a 30 minute meditation or 30 minutes of exercise in between work and play, then that's what you need to do. But it's a personal thing. And so Apollo is a tool that you can, that can help you before you've developed any of those other routines or practices. It can help, uh, you know, prepare the body to transition from one energy level or state to another energy level or state like work to play and helping us recognize that we can transition that state very easily just by tapping a button on our arm or leg um, on the Apollo helps us recognize that there are lots of other things like the exercise, the meditation, the breathing that we can also do to even increase that response. So it's this ecosystem of tools that we really engage highly in the in that process. That's a very valuable answer. Thank you. But and I only have one more question to, uh, to ask you, but you reminded me of something important. Um, you know, we, we, if we can't leave the stress behind us when we've quit working, we bring it home and we start snapping at the people around us because you're not going to snap at your coworkers or somebody that you talk to on Zoom. You're going to snap at your partner or your kids. And so I think that's a really valuable use for the Apollo is maybe to use that relaxing, you know, chill out mode before you, like a transition before you get home and get with people you love. So you're not snapping at them. Absolutely. So thank you. I love what you just said. Now, my last question is weight loss because uh, a lot of people eat out of nervousness, out of stress. And have you done anything with weight loss or have you gotten feedback from people or any studies coming up on that? So we don't have any studies of weight loss yet. It's a, it's a bit of a difficult study to do because it requires following a fairly large group of people over a very, fairly long time. Um, but we have heard reports from people that this has helped, been helpful. And I think, you know, it's, it's very important to recognize that stress impacts our metabolism, right? So if you are changing, if you want to lose weight, for instance, and you're changing the way that you eat, that is only one part of what's happening because what's also happening is the way we, our bodies use food, the way we break down the food and the way we absorb the food. And then what happens to it after that, does it get actually moved into a usable form or does it get moved into a fat form that's for long-term storage? Cause our body believes ourselves to be under threat of survival. Right. And so oftentimes we, we already know a lot of this. I'm sure you know a lot of this, that people who are under more chronic stress have more increased abdominal fat, for instance, right? This, these are areas that we don't typically store fat, but we do when our bodies perceive us to be under threat. So it is important or survive real survival threat. So by, by chain, by, ba- you know, by doing this, this nervous system balancing activities, the autonomic toning, whether using the Apollo or not, these techniques uh, can all help boost our metabolism or balance our metabolism to the point where we understand that we can regulate it better. Stress increases blood sugar, as you mentioned earlier, right? So this is another area where um, we can intervene more consciously than we thought. Mm -hmm. And I wanna throw in there too about the microbiome because there is research on um, how stress changes the microbiome and that's going to affect weight too. There's actually a lot of research coming out of weight. You know, why, why do people gain weight? What type of microbiome in the gut causes them to be overweight? So that I threw that little extra thing in there. Well, anyway, Dr. Dave Raven, I just, I want to thank you so much for doing, inventing this little device. Um, <clears throat> I, I know how important stress is. And when I found out 
that this was a tool that people could use and then kind of looked into who you all are and what you did and everything. I thought, well, you may not even realize what a gift it is, but I honestly think that until people deal with stress, they will never get well. Uh, this is really a gift. So thank you very much for being on this interview, but also thank you for what you and your team have done to bring this gift basically to us. Thank you. And I did want to let people know if they go to our website that we have a discount for them. If they, um, I'll just say right out front that the Apollo Neuro costs at retail $350. It's worth every single penny. You will spend way more than that at your psychiatrist visits and not get the benefit that the Apollo Neuro has. So thank you for inventing it for all of us. And thank you for being on here. It's my sincere pleasure. I'm really glad that you were enjoying it. I personally use it every day and I really appreciate you for having me. Thank you so much for the time. Well, thank you everybody for tuning in and stay tuned for our next interview. Thank you.